It's a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, it's so good to gather with people who follow Jesus, who are lovers of God, and I'm, I'm so happy that uh, I get to preach this morning, to preach from God's Word. Um, and as I was reflecting on this message, I was thinking about all the opinions that we have out in the world. There are lots of opinions. You can see videos with life hacks, ways to shortcut things in life. People have opinions about fitness and the best way to get in shape or to stay in shape or to build muscle or do all these things. There's lots of opinions and people who want to teach us and explain to us and tell us how to do things. There's a lot of opinions in our church among the people here. We all have different opinions about different things. And in fact, even in my own family, there's a lot of opinions. So who has the right answer? Who should we trust? Who has wisdom that is worth listening to? Who should we listen to? And also, and especially, for the big questions of life. Like, what is the meaning of life? What happens to us when we die? We need to know whose wisdom is right. What is the right wisdom? Who should we listen to? Now, for us who are Christians, today we believe that God's Word, the Bible, has answers to these questions. So if we have the answers to life's biggest questions, like what is the meaning of life, or what happens to us when we die, then how should we tell people about this? How should we explain this to people, saying we have the answer? We understand the Bible to have the answer, but how do we tell people about that? Or also, why when we tell people the answer that we understand the Bible is giving, why do people not believe? Why do some people not believe the Bible? If the Bible is true, if the Bible is right, then why do so many people not believe? Our passage today that we're going to be looking at, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul explains to us how the wisdom of the world is so far away from the wisdom of God. They're completely on different ends of the spectrum. Paul's going to explain how God's wisdom really is true, and why our faith should be in God's wisdom not in the wisdom of men. That we should listen to God and His wisdom and not the wisdom of men. So today we're going to study 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. And we're going to go to chapter 2, verse 5. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. It's printed in your bulletin, so you can follow along or you can turn there in your copy of God's Word. I'll read that and you follow along as I read. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's Word. Well, the main message or the big idea of this passage actually comes from verse 18, the first verse that we read. That is the main point of this passage and of the sermon today. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. Folly means foolishness. It means to, the opposite of wise. So this verse is saying that the word of, cross, of the word of the cross, which is the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross for salvation, this message appears to be foolish to a lost world. That's why it says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who believe, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we'll take it in three different chunks, three different parts. First, we'll look at folly and wisdom. And then we'll look at how does that relate to the church of God. And then we'll, ex- we'll end by exploring the power of God. I'll give you those points as we go through. So if you didn't write them down, don't worry. But we're going to start looking at folly and wisdom. The difference between foolishness and wisdom. So let's look at verse 19. So Paul gives the, the main point that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And then he says in verse 19, he quotes, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's a tongue twister. It's hard to say multiple times. Thwart means to prevent or to stop something from happening. So it's saying God is going to stop the discernment or the wisdom of the world from being true and right. He's going to frustrate. It's going to be become not true, that the wisdom of the world will actually turn out to be foolishness. So we see that God's plan from the beginning is to be opposite of or to be opposed to the world's wisdom. This is quoted from Isaiah and also Job and Jeremiah have a similar passage as well, all from the Old Testament. Isaiah 29, 14 says, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning shall be hidden. So Paul here is quoting Isaiah and other 
Old Testament passages to show that God's plan from the beginning was to be opposed to the wisdom of men. Then Paul asks some rhetorical questions here. He says, who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? The scribe represents the religious leaders. So the religious wisdom, the wisdom of the Jews. The debater is from the secular side, the the non-religious, but from the Greeks. They wanted to debate and show that they had wisdom and intellect. So this is the worldly wisdom on either the religious or the secular side. Paul is saying, where is any wisdom in the world? Is there wisdom in the world that can match God's wisdom? He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's showing his point by asking this question that God's wisdom makes all the wisdom of the world look foolish, whether it's the religious wisdom or the debaters like the Greek wisdom. All of it is made foolish before God. And then he explains this more in 21. In verse 21, he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So in the wisdom of God, this wisdom of God is God's design, God's purpose. So God purposed from the beginning, knowing what he was doing. He made sure that the world did not know God through wisdom. This is saying that the world's wisdom, so research and reasoning and arguing and searching from a worldly perspective, uh, from a worldly place, cannot reach the conclusion that Jesus is the Savior. The world and us as people on our own cannot reach the conclusion that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that his death on the cross paid the penalty for sin, it appeals, appears to the world and to us naturally that this message of Jesus is foolish. There's no way that could be what we need. There's no way that that could be the right way or the, wisdom, the way of wisdom. Worldly wisdom goes the other direction. And we see in verse 21 as we continue that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This pleasing of God means it's God's purpose to make sure that the wisdom of the world goes the opposite direction of the wisdom of God so that those who believe are believing in God and that he's the one who is revealing this wisdom to them. So the true wisdom of God, the wisdom of the cross, looks crazy, it looks silly, it looks stupid to the lost world, to lost people. It may have looked that way to you. Maybe the first time you heard about Jesus, you're like, that is crazy. Let's continue. So verse 22, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So we have the two areas, these two types of people. The Jews who want a sign. We saw this, we see this in Luke when the people are asking Jesus for a sign. And he says, the only sign you will have is the sign of Jonah. And the Greeks seek wisdom. They want a good discussion. They want to be amazed by some new ideas or some deep thought. But Paul says in verse 23, this is worth underlining. We preach Christ crucified. He says, we preach Christ crucified. And that message becomes a stumbling block. This is something that the Jews cannot get over. 
It does not compute in their natural minds. And it's folly to the Gentiles. In the same way, this looks like foolishness to those who are seeking wisdom. Our natural minds, because we are not much different than the Jews and the Gentiles that Paul's talking about, in our natural place, our natural minds cannot get over or come to terms with the truth of the message of the cross. Now, the message of the cross must be settled in our heart first and then our mind. We can't just settle it in our mind. Sometimes people try to settle the message of the cross. They try to say that Jesus was a good moral teacher. Or maybe put him in the category of other religious teachers or other religious figures. They say that the message of the cross is a fairy tale or maybe a myth. That it couldn't possibly be true. But these are all wrong ways of dealing with Jesus. And then in 24, Paul continues. He says, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. It's good that he mentions here both Jews and Greeks. So he's not rejecting Jews and Gentiles or Jews and Greeks. He's saying, no, the distinction is those who are called. There are some who are called who are Jews and some who are called who are Greeks. So he says, those who are called. This is similar to verse 18 when he said, to those who are being saved. So this is the same category of people. Those who are being saved are those who are called. We see here from this that the people are not saved. A person is not saved on their own wisdom. They don't use worldly wisdom or their own thinking in order to arrive at the conclusion that Jesus is the Savior. They must be called by God. God is the one who opens their eyes to see the truth and the wisdom that Jesus is the Savior, that He is the Christ. Just think about the crucifixion, the message of the cross, that Jesus was was beat and He died on a cross as a criminal. It's not one to be, that doesn't look wise to do that. That's not a place of being in control or of power. He's treated like a criminal of the state. He's taking a low place that is completely opposite of someone who has wisdom and power. That's completely opposite place of God himself. How can a God come to earth and die in such a way that looks foolishness to the world? Paul says, continues in 24, that to those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So for those who believe Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. That low place that he took on the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. It looks foolishness to the outside world, but to those of us who are called, we understand that is the power and the wisdom. These two are linked together, God's wisdom and his power. And they're made manifest, which means we can see them on display in Jesus Jesus is the one who displays. He doesn't just represent God. He is God. In his person and his words is the power and the wisdom of God. And then in 25, Paul says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This foolishness of God is not in general. It's referring to the cross, the message of the cross. So it's saying that the the so-called foolishness of the cross 
is still wiser than men. And the so-called weakness of God that was displayed by Jesus on the cross is still stronger than men. The apparent foolishness or apparent weakness of God is still wiser and stronger than any strength or wisdom of men. So salvation makes no sense to our natural minds. Think about if someone treated you the way that people treat God. As sinners, all people are opposed to God by nature and by choice. We love our sin more than we love God in our natural place. We start out as God's enemies. And our sin is similar to spitting in the face of God and cursing Him and His Son. If someone did that to you or to me, how would we respond? We wouldn't say, I want to give you a gift of myself dying on a cross. No. If it was up to us, we would say, see you later. You can rot. But God didn't say that. He said, I love you and I want to rescue you. And Jesus came to die on the cross. He took that low position even though we were opposed to him. Our natural minds can't fathom that. That seems opposite to all wisdom. Who would do that? Who would do that? Only God. Only the true God. So for us today, as we apply this to our lives, as we consider how does this change the way we live, first we need to consider that this is not saying that all worldly wisdom is bad. Not at all. We benefit from wisdom that God gives to us as people. We have wisdom and knowledge that can accomplish great things. There's life-saving technology at the hospitals. There's ways that we can use technology and wisdom to grow food for the people of the earth. We can see wisdom being employed in the government as well. We pray for wisdom for the governing officials. So we're not saying abandon all worldly wisdom, that anyone who is wise to the world should be rejected. It's not, we're not saying that. What this is saying is the, the world's wisdom cannot land on, cannot come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Savior. That must come from God in sinners. So we need to remember that sinners are not saved by reason or intellect or some fancy presentation of logic. So as we witness to our friends and our family. We desire them to become Christians. But we must remember that just because we make a clear and logical case to them of why they should believe, it may look like foolishness to them. Remember verse 24. The key is here to those who are called. God is the one who calls people to himself. So instead of trying to use logic and reason to tell our family and friends why they should believe, we should first start by asking God, to call them to belief. We want to pray for them and ask God to soften their hearts and ask God to save them, that he would call them. And then we want to present the word, like it says in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. That our message would not be, you should be a Christian because then you get to be in a community. Or you should be a Christian because then all your problems in life will be over. That's not true. The message that we want to preach is Christ crucified. We don't want to shy away from what sounds like foolishness to the world because we know from this passage that it's the power of God to those who are being saved. So pray for your family and your friends to be saved. Ask God to call them out of darkness and into the light of Jesus Christ. And then share the whole message of the gospel with them when you have opportunity to talk to them. 
don't make, don't sugarcoat things or make things sound nice or maybe not talk too much about uh, repentance or something like that. But no, we want to share the whole gospel and that starts with Christ crucified. And lastly, as a church, we want to be concerned with preaching Christ crucified. If those who are preaching on Sunday are not preaching Christ crucified, if there's some other gospel, then it's not really the gospel at all. There is no power and wisdom from God in preaching something that makes everyone feel good about themselves, but has no power from God. So we preach Christ crucified. We do this so that non-believers, people who are not Christians yet, can know the truth. And they can hear the truth of the gospel. And we also do this to remind us as Christians of the truth. We want to be reminded of where we started and where we are now. What Christ has done for us. We don't want to ever get over the gospel or finish talking about it. We're never finished talking about it. We do this every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we'll do together this morning. We say at the end, as we drink the cup, that we were, are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. That's what it looks like to preach the gospel, or to preach Christ crucified. That we remember again and again that he died for us. So Paul continues in verse 26, he addresses the church. So the first point was folly and wisdom. Point number two, we're going to start in verse 26. Point number two is us who are being saved. This is a quote from verse 18. Us who are being saved. This is the church. So let's look at verse 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." So Paul tells them to consider their calling. Consider where they came from. He tells them to think about their start. We should do this as well. Consider where we came came from. Consider where we were before Christ called us. And he he talks to them about how they're, they're not wise according to the world. They're not powerful. They're not of influence, of, of noble birth. It doesn't say that none of them, it just says not many. So it's not saying that Christianity is off limits to those people who might be wise or powerful or of noble birth. No, it's not off limits to someone because of that. But many people are called who have very little influence. Maybe they're not born into a family of nobility. Paul's point is that they don't arrive at belief because of their wisdom or because of their own power or because of their own influence. But, in spite of their lack of power and wisdom and influence, God chose them. Think about us here at WSBC. We are an educated and intelligent congregation. But many of us come from humble places. We're not royalty or even close to it. 
Most of us are not famous or influential in politics or in business. If you were selecting a group of people from Shanghai to proclaim a message with authority and power, we are probably not the group of people that would be selected first. Most of us would probably not be in that group. But here we are as God's church with the message, with authority and power from Jesus. So we see that God chooses not based on who we are when we were called, but he calls those who he wants. 27 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Three times Paul says, God chose, God chose, God chose. And he chose the way he chose in order to bring to nothing things that are, in order to shame the wise and the strong and those with human achievement. I'm reminded of the movie about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team called Miracle. The movie is called Miracle. I highly recommend it. When the team was being selected, the coach who had the vision for how to beat the Russians in hockey, that was the goal. He had the vision for how to do it. He put together his team and he presented his list to the other decision makers. And they said, coach, you've left off some of the best players And he said, I'm not looking for the best players. I'm looking for the right ones. And that's what God does in choosing us. He's not looking for the best that the world has to offer. He's choosing the people whom he decides to choose. It's up to him. And Paul tells us that it pleases God to choose the fools and the weak and the despised of the world. Because that brings him glory. We see why he does this in verse 29. So that no one may boast in his presence. If we are wise and we figure out on our own the truth of the cross, if we become Christians because we are wise or powerful or influential, then we can stand before God and say, aren't you glad that I'm on your team? Aren't you glad that we can partner together in this? That would be incredibly boastful. That would be inappropriate to do before God. God knows this. He chooses out of humbleness so that no one can stand and boast in his presence. Salvation is God's grace. It's his free gift to us as sinners. It's not by human wisdom or strength. This means that when we share about Jesus with other people, we're sharing the news of the cross of Jesus. We're not giving a few reasons why it makes logical sense that they should believe. We've talked about it's not logical based on the world standards, but the power of God is in saving people when it doesn't make sense to the world. The power of God is to raise the spiritually dead to new life in Christ. And that's the message that we want to proclaim to others. So verse 30, it says that because and because of him, this is because of God, because of God uh, choosing who he desires, because of God, you are in Christ. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth throughout this whole book. And so he's telling them that they are in Christ. The church exists because God chose and Jesus died. So being in Christ 
is an important phrase here. It means more than just a knowledge of Christ, but it pictures closeness and intimacy. We as a church are in Christ, and this enables us to experience unity in, around, and through Christ. Because we are in Christ. If God had not chosen us, we would not be able to covenant together as a church. We would not be able to be together. What unifies us is the center around Christ. Verse 30 continues by by saying that Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Christ is the wisdom of God. It has become wisdom to the church. And then... Paul is out righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So God's wisdom is more than just worldly wisdom. A man can be wise, but he could also, it doesn't mean that he is powerful or gracious or kind. But with God, his wisdom is manifest. It means that it shows up in everything that he does. God's wisdom is included in all these things. God's wisdom produces righteousness, sanctification, Redemption. Righteousness here is the being innocent before God. It's being right before God, like in a court of law, being justified as in right standing. Sanctification is the process of being made perfect. So when we are saved, when we believe in Jesus as our Savior, we are justified. That means before God in the court of law, we are seen as right before Him. But our hearts still have wickedness. We still sin. We must be made perfect. That's the process of sanctification. This is all going on in God's wisdom in salvation. And then redemption is the rescuing, redeeming, bringing, some, bringing people out of shame, uh, out of the curse of punishment of sin. So all these are included in God's wisdom and they're expressed in Jesus Christ. They're manifest in Jesus Christ. They're seen in Jesus. And 31, again, we see, it says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We saw in 29 that it's God's wisdom. God's wisdom is hidden from man so that no one may boast in his presence. But there is a proper type of boasting. The command here is not to not boast, but it is to boast, but boast in the Lord. To boast is to brag or to be prideful. Boasting begins when we start to think that there is some good in us that comes from us. When we're kind to someone, or maybe we deny ourselves of some worldly pleasure of sin, and then we start to think, hey, I'm pretty good. Yeah, look at what I just did. That's boasting. That's the beginning of boasting. And that's what we're called not to do. We cannot boast because that does not come from us. It's God's God's work in us. It's his sanctification. It's his spirit who's working in us to help us to obey and to live rightly. So we cannot boast and should not boast, but we should boast in the Lord. So we apply this section by considering our calling, thinking about what was the condition of our life before God called us. If God hadn't called me, where would I be today? I know more and more about the condition of my heart. 
and I can only imagine the terrible things that I would be involved in if God had not saved me. Consider your own call. Where were you before God called you? And remember, as we consider our call, that God's call on our life is a call to die to sin and to live the life that He gives, that He enables us to live. So consider your calling and then boast or brag, whatever word you want to use, boast, but not about you, but about God. As we consider our calling, it's reason to boast about what God has done. It's amazing to see how God has changed us. So we don't boast about our own spiritual growth as it's coming from us, as we're tempted to do. But we boast about what God is doing and how he has grown us and he is changing us to be more like Christ. And then again, for us as the church, we must remember and be reminded that we are in Christ and we are in Christ together. What does it look like for us to live as brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, that's why we have our covenant. It's printed in your bulletin today as we're going to renew our covenant with each other as members of WSBC when we take the Lord's Supper. So take a look at the covenant. If you're a member, read it carefully. Ask God if there's any way that you're not living out this covenant of being in Christ. If you're not a member of WSBC, also take a look at it as we read it later. And think about what it means to be a believer who is in Christ with other believers. And we can, be only, we can only be in Christ by the power of God, which is the last part of verse 18 and also our last point for this morning. The power of God. Point number three, the power of God. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we see the power of God. So Paul gets personal here about himself. He talks about when he arrived in Corinth, how he came not proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. So he didn't come with the signs and wisdom that the Jews and the Gentiles who were there would have wanted. But he came, as we see in verse 2, knowing, uh, knowing nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's worth underlining in your Bible and even on the bulletin. But even in your Bible, underline Jesus Christ and him crucified. The word of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. That's what we read in verse 18. And Paul knew that the true power to convert sinners and to build a church came not from his own ability to argue and debate, but from the word of the cross. So Paul came. He says in, in verse 3, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And his speech and message was not in plausible words of wisdom. So he came in humbleness. He was not coming to Corinth in the best shape of his life. He didn't have momentum behind him and energy to do this work. No, he showed up, he says, weak and in fear and much trembling. But the people listened and they believed in Jesus. How would they listen to him? They're wanting, the people there are wanting 
signs and wisdom, and he comes with a simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. But the people believe. And we see in verse 4, where he says, But he came, and what he did was in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Demonstration here is not just an example, like someone might show you how to, to make a meal or, or, or complete a recipe. It's not that kind of demonstration. It means a proof of fact. So this leaves no doubt about the power of God. This is the evidence of the power of God, is this demonstration. Paul's weakness and his plain speech that he came to Corinth with were important to show God's power and the work of His Spirit in the hearts of the people of Corinth. So he came speaking a very simple message and being in a weak place so that God's power would show through. There's no logical reason that the people should listen to Paul and accept his message, but they did. There's no worldly reason why they should listen to Paul or even want to hear what he has to say, but they did. And that shows the power of God, not the power of his speech, not his persuasion, not his wisdom, but God's power and wisdom. Why was it important that it happened this way? Let's look at verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul, and of course God, through Paul, is concerned with the, the faith of the Corinthians. He says, so that their faith might be in the power of God. Paul wanted them to be saved because of the power and wisdom of Christ crucified, not because Paul was a good speaker or a good presenter. We shouldn't forget that this passage in Corinthians comes right in the middle of Paul's confrontation with them about divisions in the church. The church is divided. We looked at last week the, the passage that comes right before this about how the church is divided. And it's going to show up again in a later chapter about how the church is divided. So this portion about wisdom is right in the middle. And Paul was, uh, if they're attracted to Paul because of his wise words or because of this great way of speaking or because of his authority or power that he presents instead of God, then they would be tempted to have their faith in Paul or in the words that he said and not God's. But because Paul was weak and fearful, his message was plain and simple. It was obvious that the church had put their faith in the power of God and not man's wisdom. So for any church, the church in Corinth, for us today, for any church to be unified, the members of the church must be unified around and in Christ and Him crucified. Any other unity based on language or nationality or preference of music, any other unity is fake, it's weak, and it will not last. It's not of God. The unity of the church must be in Christ and faith in Him. And notice, too, as Paul describes his situation, how he's an example of the main point of this passage. The word of, cross, uh, the, word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, those, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul came with what seemed like foolish talk. It did not make sense that they would listen to him. But people were saved, and that's because of the power of God. He is the example, and is a great example of this main point. 
So what we need to remember from this part is that we need to get the first things first. You underlined Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the first thing. The church, the church in Corinth was formed because Paul preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified, which is the power of God. We as a church should rally around Christ and Him crucified. Should be on our mind, should be in our sermons, should be on our lips as we speak with each other and with the world outside of this church. And also our faith, faith must rest in the power of God, which we have seen it comes from the wisdom of God, which is the word of the cross. So our faith must rest in the power of God, like it says in verse 5. Our faith is in Jesus. Our faith is not in information, but in a person. Faith is not just a good feeling, and so it it helps me to, to feel better about myself. No, faith is believing in a person, believing in Jesus. Faith is not a life hack. It's not get a little faith and then everything goes better. No, faith is a new life, made possible by the death of Jesus on the cross. Our story of conversion, when we talk about what has happened to us, should say, I was perishing, I was lost, but God, in His wisdom and power, opened my eyes to the truth and wisdom of Jesus as the Savior of my soul. It starts with us perishing, like it says in verse 18. But God, but God calls and opens our eyes to the truth and the wisdom the word of the cross. It's by his power and his power alone that we are saved. So we need to get the first things first, Jesus Christ and him crucified, and make sure that our faith is resting in the power of God, not in men. So this morning we've looked at this passage, we looked at folly and wisdom, and the, the wisdom of God compared to the wisdom of the world. We talked about the church and us who are being saved. And then we've looked at the power of God. Now I've heard it said that an organization is defined by the stories that they tell. Founders of companies and, and churches as well like to tell the story of how they started. What was important at the beginning. And that's, those stories are told over and over. And that's really what becomes starts to define an organization or a group. And we can see that God's wisdom... We can see God's wisdom in Paul's desire here to make sure that the Corinthian church started in the right way. That the center, the focus, was Christ and Him crucified. So when the Corinth church tells of their beginning, the hope is that they would start with Christ and Him crucified. Not saying Paul arrived and had some amazing words, or we went out and looked for the answers and found them on our own. The story for them, and hopefully for us too, is that we were lost in our sin, but God, in his wisdom, saved us by the cross of Jesus.